Good morning, everyone. If I could get your attention, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Damon Wilson. I'm Executive Vice President here at the Atlantic Council, and I'm delighted to welcome you here for the, a very important discussion today on America's role in the world with former Prime Minister of Denmark, former NATO Secretary General, a close friend of the Atlantic Council, Anders Fogh Rasmussen. It is just a terrific pleasure to welcome you back to Washington and welcome you back to the Atlantic Council. We've had the incredible pleasure to work closely uh, while you served as Prime Minister and as NATO Secretary General. Um, we have with us someone who will be speaking today on The Will to Lead. You've seen his book in the lobby, The Will to Lead, America's Indispensable Role in the Global Fight for Freedom. This gentleman has always been an extraordinary transatlanticist, a principled leader, and a voice of clarity. And now he's bringing this uh, to bear, and I, I hope what we'll have is an important conversation about America's role in the world. This is a very timely conversation, of course. This issue of the United States' relationship with the world is at the forefront of our own debate right now as we enter a presidential election. And I think today's discussion will provide an important platform to discuss America's foreign and national security policy, as well as how U.S. leadership can help adapt, maintain an international rules-based order. Today's event is part of a series from our Scowcroft Center of America's role in the world. It's a forum for frank discussion on strategy and an effort to build a substantive and constructive public dialogue on how the United States should act in the world. Over the last year, we've had a series of debates on this set of issues. We welcome experts and other political actors uh, to share their views on this topic. We anchored our own global strategy forum this past year around this theme. Um, right now, for our international uh, friends and allies that are following the debate in the United States, there's a sense of uncertainty uh, about what America is thinking of its role in the world and how the world is changing. So despite being the leading world power, our allies, partners, and adversaries, we hear from them, remain unsure about America's approach to operating in a world where power is diffused among and beyond nation states. So this series at the Atlanta Council is now expressly turning to other world leaders uh, who think about America's role and ask them what it should be. And I can think of no better person than Anders Volk Rasmussen to get us started. Secretary General Rasmussen has been at the center of European and global politics for three decades as Secretary General of NATO, as Prime Minister of Denmark, and a leading politician in, in Denmark prior to that. After serving as Prime Minister of Denmark since 2001, he was uh, selected as NATO Secretary General. And during his term, this alliance saw its operational peak, operating with forces from Afghanistan to Kosovo to Libya to counter piracy operations along the Somali coast, a training mission in Iraq, a counterterrorism operation in the Mediterranean. And it was under his leadership that the alliance began to adapt itself to buttress its re resolve towards the changing policies uh, towards Vladimir Putin in the East as well. After stepping down, he established Rasmussen Global, a consulting firm, uh, with which she works today. And this new book, which is available for purchase in the lobby, has gotten an extraordinary review just yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, so I encourage you to buy a copy and to get it signed while the Secretary General is here. This book tackles the very issues uh, that we have been here attempting to address at the Atlanta Council in this series. The will to lead America's indispensable role in the global fight for freedom critically analyzes the strategy and decision-making of President Barack Obama and his Secretaries of State through drawing geopolitical events of the presidency, the Arab Spring, Crimea, Ukraine, among others. Uh, he'll get into these issues. He's also looked at this historically from a perspective of leadership of other American presidents. 
he speaks out clearly on America's role as a global policeman and speaks out clearly in calling for the need and the urgency of an alliance of democracies. We look forward to the conversation. Moderating, moderating today's discussion is Julia Yaffe. Welcome back to the Atlantic Council. Uh, she's a contributing writer for Politico Magazine and a columnist of foreign policy. Uh, after graduating from Columbia Journalism School, she was awarded a Fulbright Scholar, returned to Russia, where she and her family lived until moving to the United States in 1990. Uh, she's been a senior editor for the New Republic here in Washington. And in, uh, 2000, in, in 2015, she joined the New York Times Magazine. So before I turn it over to you, Julia, I want to point out and invite those that are following this conversation online uh, to participate uh, using the hashtag ACStrategy and to remind everyone that this conversation will be on the record and, and live broadcast. So with that, Mr. Secretary General, let me invite you to the stage and then Julia will join to moderate. Thank you very much, Damon, for that very kind introduction. And uh, first of all, let me say how delighted I am to be back uh, in um, the Atlantic Council. Uh, we cannot overestimate uh, the importance of the work you do. And let me use this opportunity to, to thank warmly uh, Fred and Damon and the whole staff uh, here at the Atlantic Council for your uh, significant contribution uh, to developing the transatlantic uh, relationship, and we really need that. And as Damon pointed out in his introduction, I have, since my childhood, uh, been a strong Atlanticist and a strong believer uh, in American uh, leadership. I'm born and raised um, at a farm, which I think has also shaped uh, my uh, worldview. Uh, my father uh, profited uh, from the Marshall Plan, uh, which was uh, launched, as you all know, by President uh, Truman. I still remember how my parents uh, were encouraged uh, by President Kennedy's inspiring uh, communication on the need for uh, determined American global uh, leadership. Um, we all remember, in Europe, we all remember his uh, very important Berlin speech uh, from 1963, where he said uh, the very famous words, I, uh, ich bin ein Berliner, uh, which uh, contributed to um, stimulating uh, the European uh, unity and approach, uh, the Western European approach uh, towards uh, the Soviet Union. And as a very young politician, I visited uh, the United States for the first time in, in 1982 uh, when President Reagan uh, was uh, president. Um, I, I still remember um, how his firm conviction on the superiority of liberalism and capitalism um, uh, I would say infused an infectious, infectious optimism uh, in the whole Western world. And also President Reagan made a very important Berlin speech 
we all remember how he said, tear down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev, and soon it fell. Um, so all the way through, I have been a strong Atlanticist, a strong believer in the need for American leadership. And here and now, the world needs a policeman. I know that's a controversial statement. It is in my own country, it is in Europe, and also in some camps in the United States, it's a bit of a controversial statement. But the fact is, the world needs a policeman. Wherever you look, the world is on fire. In the Middle East, you see killings in Syria, in Iraq, in North Africa, you see Libya as a failed state. In Eastern Europe, you have seen a reckless Russian attack uh, on Ukraine and the illegal annexation of Crimea into the Russian Federation. In Southeast Asia, China is flexing its muscles. Uh, and you have a rogue state, North Korea, threatening not only its neighbors, but also the US with a nuclear attack. So we need a world policeman to restore law and order uh, in the world. And then who could act as the world's policeman? Could it be uh, the UN? No, it's too weak. Could it be Russia? No, it's a declining society with no global rich, and you can't trust a country uh, that uh, tries to dominate its neighbors. Uh, could it be China? No, as a communist state, uh, they wouldn't um, be a reliable and trustworthy policeman. Uh, could it be Europe? No, because Europe is weak, divided, and leaderless. So you have only the United States to act as the world's policeman. So the US is the only capable, desirable, and reliable candidate to that post. And the fact is that when the US retreats, or even is perceived to retreat, the US will leave behind a security vacuum that will be filled by um, the bad guys. So when the US retreats or is perceived to retreat, if they start about the American leadership, the result will be stronger foes, weaker friends, and a more insecure world. The reason why I can say I love the United States is the freedom-loving people which has led to an anti-authoritarian uh, attitude, the entrepreneurial spirit in this society that has created so many inventions in the world, the solid and mature political institutions that has made the United States a leader when it comes to, uh, and it has inspired the creation of democracy all over the world. <clears throat> all this has made the United States a very attractive nation that attracts the most talented people from all over the world. 
It is truly the shining city on the hill. Um, and on top of that, you also have a unique geography with peaceful neighbors, both north and south. You have Mexico and Canada. And uh, to the west and to the east, you have um, the Pacific Ocean and uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So surrounded by peaceful neighbors and fish, uh, the United States can actually concentrate on the task to lead the world, because the United States isn't engaged in regional um, uh, conflict that threatens its own borders. So in that respect, the United, Na uh, the United States is an exceptional nation, but with that exceptionalism also comes exceptional responsibilities and obligations. And this is a reason why the United States must take on the role as the world's policeman. We need determined American global leadership. The US is destined to lead whether you like it or not. And as Robert Kagan ha ha has said, superpowers don't get to retire. Now, um, of course, overall, I also have a very strong personal relationship uh, with the United States. Uh, all this is not just, for me, it's not just political. It's much, much deeper. I already told you that I visited uh, the United States in 1982 for the first time when Reagan was president. I, among other things, I visited the University of uh, Chicago, and I met with uh, uh, Mr. Lucas, who later received um, a Nobel Prize in e economics. Uh, and for me, this was, I would say, an, an economic awakening. Because at university, I learned a lot about uh, what we call demand-side economics. But at the University of Chicago, I learned about supply-side economics. Uh, somebody would call it regonomics. Um, but I returned to Denmark with a completely new view on economics. Um, so for me, this was an eye-opener. Um, as prime minister of Denmark, I worked closely with President Bush on Afghanistan and Iraq. As Secretary General of NATO, I worked closely with President Obama, again on, on Afghanistan, but we also launched uh, the NATO operation in uh, Libya. But apart from these personal relations uh, with uh, the United States, I have also family in the United States. Uh, our son Henrik lives in the United States. He um, went to Hampton Sydney College uh, in uh, Virginia. He took the whole of his education in the United States. He left Denmark immediately after his military service. And, and my wife and I never doubted that he would end up here because he has been 
even more, if possible, <coughs> pro-American than I have been. Uh, so we were not surprised. Well, he went to Hampton Sydney College, um, and as uh, Prime Minister, um, I uh, went to uh, Hampton Sydney College to make a speech, um, and it was uh, advertised in local media and at a nearby women's college, Christina, uh, who comes from Minnesota, saw this and she decided to go to Hampton Sydney uh, to listen to the Danish Prime Minister. And the reason is that some years before, um, in uh, school, her teacher in geography had asked the students to pick different countries and write an essay about each country. And she picked Denmark. It was a kind of lottery. She picked the name Denmark in a hat. And she got so interested in everything about Denmark that when she saw that the Danish Prime Minister was going to make a speech at Hampton Sydney College, she decided to go to Hampton Sydney College to listen to the Danish Prime Minister. She got seated next to the Prime Minister's son. I don't know how much of my speech uh, she grasped at that um, uh, on, on that occasion, but a few weeks later, Henrik gave us a piece of information that he was now, had now started to date uh, Christina. To make a very long story very brief, they got married. Um, and at the wedding, uh, in my speech, I said to them, I think and I hope this is true love because the combination of a lottery and a politician speech is not the most solid foundation for a marriage. I think it is because now they have three children. So I have three American grandchildren. And of course, it uh, also strengthens my personal bond with the United States and we have three Danish grandchildren. So, you see why I'm strongly attached to the transatlantic alliance. Three grandchildren here, three in Denmark, and I wish for them that the bond between Denmark and the United States and Europe and the United States will further strengthen in the coming years. And to that end, we need the US as the world's policeman. Now, you might ask, how can we convince the Smith family in Peoria that the United States should spend money on being the world's policeman? <coughs> the fact is, in my opinion, that it is in the American self-interest to act as the world's policeman. And let me just mention three things. Firstly, if you don't strike your enemies on their soil, they will go to America and hit you on your soil. And that's exactly what we saw 9-11. That could be repeated if you don't address the security challenges at their root. Secondly, prevention is less expensive than cure. Also when it comes to security policy. It's it's much cheaper for the United States, both in blood and treasure, 
to prevent conflict and knock down conflict while they're still small, instead of waiting until they become so big that you can't manage them any longer. And that's exactly what we saw in the run-up to the Second World War, where isolationism was the dominant political trend in the United States in 20s and 30s. That was the dominant political philosophy in the United States, you should not engage. And suddenly you saw what happened. The United States was not sheltered from the World War, and it took enormous resources to end the Second World War. So prevention is less expensive than cure. And thirdly, it's a fact that the United States prospers when the world is at peace and rules are respected. In other words, it is in America's interest to uphold the world order that you created after the Second World War with all the institutions and rules that has governed our world since then. The World Bank, International Monetary Fund, UN, the World Trade Organization, etc. All that has created a world and rules-based order that has given not only the United States, but all of us, an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity. So really, I do believe it is an American self-interest to be the world's policeman. Of course, you shouldn't go it alone. Of course, you should have helpers. Um, the Europeans, for instance, should pay more for our common security. Uh, and they will, no doubt. <clears throat> In September 2014, NATO allies decide that all 28 will pay at least 2% of the GDP uh, to our common security and defense within a decade. And that's not just theory. I can tell you that in 2016, the Europeans invest much more in defense than they did in 2015. That's the good news. And in general, NATO is the best deal the US has ever made. Because Thanks to allies, you get security much cheaper than otherwise. Just one example, in Afghanistan, when we peaked our operation in Afghanistan, 130,000 troops were deployed to Afghanistan. Out of these 130,000, the 40,000 were Europeans. And obviously, those 40,000 from Europe relieved the US because you didn't need to send the 40,000 to Afghanistan. Um, so in very concrete terms, it helps to have friends and allies. So that leads to the clear conclusion that in the future, you shouldn't speak about pivots to one or another region in the world, the US must engage everywhere, 
because it's in your own interest. Well, in Europe, we have <clears throat> the classical divide between people who want to strengthen the transatlantic alliance and people who want to weaken it or at least make sure that Europe acts as a kind of counterpole to the United States. The latter view was, for instance, represented by the then President Chirac. I still remember a lunch with him where he told me, I quote, the American approach is simplistic and influenced by the fact that the US is a young civilization. That was President Chirac's view. So he argued in favor of a multipolar world where you have an American pole, of course, but you also have a European, a Chinese, an Indian pole. And in, in, in practice, he and Chancellor Schroeder from Germany formed a coalition with President Putin, a kind of French-German-Russian alliance, which I consider very dangerous, very dangerous geopolitical fantasy. On the other hand, or in the other camp, you had, for instance, Prime Minister Blair. Um, he exemplified the realism and necessity of an alliance with the United States. Um, despite the fact that Blair and I belong to two different political families, I cannot remember one single point where I disagreed with Mr. Blair. We were always in agreement, and of course not least when it comes to the need for a strong transatlantic alliance. I still remember once we had a, a press conference together. In the preparation for it, we went through possible questions. And I told him, be prepared that, uh, because he was in Denmark, be prepared that some journalists will uh, claim that I'm in your pocket. Oh, yes, he said. And they claim I'm in George Bush's pocket, and he is in the pocket of the Almighty. Um, so this was uh, the thinking, but he never left his strong position. Uh, you could always trust him. Um, and still, I think, it's a very rich British nation, a very rich British Labour Party that can throw away such a stout and gifted leader. Um, and Europe need leaders who are devoted both to European integration and the alliance with the United States. So what we need is strong American global leadership in cooperation with like-minded democracies across the world. Of course, the core of that should be a strengthened transatlantic relationship. In my book, I describe how such an integrated transatlantic community uh, should have at least three important elements. Security-wise, we should strengthen NATO, not least by 
further defense investments by Europeans. We should strengthen the economic dimension of the transatlantic relationship. Among other things, we should, as quickly as possible, finalize negotiations on the transatlantic trade and investment partnership. It is a disaster that um, so-called grassroots movements have succeeded in dragging this out. And now I follow closely the American presidential debate, and I don't feel the enthusiasm. Uh, neither, was, uh, neither in the Republican or in the Democratic camp on free trade agreements, including the TTIP. Actually, I see the TTIP as an economic NATO. And we should all recall Article 2 in the NATO treaty. It's always Article 5, the defense clause we are speaking about. But Article 2 is also very important. According to Article 2, we should strengthen economic cooperation between uh, members of the alliance. And finally, we should also strengthen people-to-people -people contacts across the Atlantic. I participated in an international visitor leadership program at the beginning of the 80s. And I think such cultural, educational, scientific, political, exchange programs are of utmost importance. So I would say democracies all over the world unite. You should unite to counter still more aggressive autocrats in the world. It was Thomas Jefferson who once said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And um, I think we should continuously work for the promotion of freedom and democracy because that will lead to peace and prosperity. Finally, I think once we have spread freedom and democracy to all countries or at least more countries in the world than today, terrorists will lose recruits, lose sponsors, lose their safe havens, and we will in general see less room for tyranny. And to achieve that goal, we should ensure an invincible global balance in favor of liberal democratic forces. And this is why we need determined American global leadership. I hope the next president of the United States will use his or her convening power to make sure that the world's democracies unite to counter Putin and all other autocrats. Thank you. So uh, 
Your pro-American views are really refreshing in this era of like anti-Atlanticism, anti-Americanism almost at home. I mean, we're hearing how we never win anymore and um, how we're just a loser country with everybody kicking sand in our face. Uh, you said you've been following the US presidential election and the debates, which were spectacular. Um, what do you, when, when you hear this dystopian vision that uh, we're kind of chewing over here of, of America and our role in the world, how do you, how do you hear it? First of all, I'm wondering how the world's strongest and biggest democracy can end up in the situation you are in <laughs> right now. Um, and I think many Europeans share that view. Um, but secondly, for me, this is not a question about a Republican or a Democrat in the White House. As I mentioned, I work closely with both kinds of presidents. For me, this is primarily a question about the will to lead. I listened carefully to the debate Monday evening. Um, I think Hillary Clinton uh, repeated uh, what I would expect uh, from four years of close collaboration with her. I know her views. I think uh, she would be very engaged uh, and in certain respects also take a tougher stance. Uh, than we have seen during recent years. Um, on um, uh, Mr. Trump, I, I saw movement. I, I mean, uh, during summer he said NATO is obsolete. Mm -hmm. Now he said I'm all for NATO. I mean, that's at least a movement in the right direction. And I, I, I wouldn't ex exclude the possibility that he will end up quite another position than he had uh, over the summer. Um, so if I'm in the lucky situation that I'm not going to vote because I'm not an American citizen, if I were, I would wait until the very last minute and I would vote for the president who has the will to lead. So you mentioned Trump's earlier statement that NATO is obsolete. In the debate on Monday, he said that the America shouldn't be the world's policeman, and he used that phrase, which, by the way, the Kremlin media immediately heard and ran with, um, because it echoes something Vladimir Putin has been saying for a long time. Uh, you made a case uh, earlier about why we should be the uh, American leader and why, I mean, the world leader and why somebody in Peoria should care. but. Uh, when you hear Trump saying these things and where he said right after the uh, convention that, you know, maybe the U.S. wouldn't even defend NATO allies, does this, does this make you worry that, that some damage, even if he doesn't win or even if he shifts his position, that some damage has already been done to the NATO alliance? Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm very much concerned about such statements because they raise doubts about uh, NATO's resolve. Uh, they raised doubt about collective defense. We never had such a discussion. There has been one thing carved out in stone, and that is Article 5, that once an, a NATO ally uh, were to be attacked, we would all um, assist them in defending their country. No doubt. Now, speaking about 
making it a precondition that all countries pay their fair share of collective defense, I am concerned it will tempt Mr. Putin to test the resolve of our alliance. Um, as I mentioned in my introduction, no doubt that the Europeans realize now we are in a completely new security situation after the Russian attack on Ukraine. So we will have to invest more, and Europeans will invest more. But you, you cannot make defense of an ally dependent on economics. You cannot. Uh, and let me just add one thing, because I noted that Newt Gingrich, who is a strong supporter of uh, Mr. Trump, said that Estonia is only a suburb to St. Petersburg. And he was not sure that America would defend a suburb to St. Petersburg and risk a nuclear war, as he said, with Russia. Now, it's an outrageous statement taking into account that Estonia is one out of five NATO allies that actually fulfill the 2% benchmark. <laughs> But on top of that, of course, such statements, if they were to be lifted to official American policies, would definitely tempt Mr. Putin to test the resolve of our alliance. But he, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Newt Gingrich has a, has a point, doesn't he? That uh, I looked into some of uh, NATO's and the Pentagon's preparations, given uh, the asymmetric warfare we saw in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And um, it was not quite clear how the U.S. and to what extent the U.S. or NATO would defend Estonia, say, if little green men showed up in Narva. I mean, do you think he, like, he, he has a point that there may be, you know, in like, what, what, what would NATO do if uh, little green men showed up in Narva? Narva is the kind of very, yeah, uh, like, yeah, the Russian en enclave in eastern. <laughs> Uh, Estonia. Yeah, but there's no doubt. Of course, NATO would assist a member state like Estonia. No doubt. <clears throat> and I would say, irrespective of what you might think when you're in the wrong room, publicly you should never raise such doubts. Mm -hmm. Because such doubts will only tempt potential aggressors to test where is the red line and speaking about red lines, once you, as American president, has defined a red line, it must, of course, have consequences if you cross it. Otherwise, you will undermine the credibility of the president and the United States. We'll get to that red line in a minute, but I wanted to ask you again about uh, about Mr. Trump and the and the two percent of. Uh, a nation's GDP going to defense. Uh, do you think he has a point, especially when it comes to a voter in Peoria, Illinois, that's seeing uh, factories being shut down, that's seeing uh, like a pretty grim economic picture around them, and they're saying, why are we also paying taxes to defend a country that isn't fulfilling its requirement? Do you, do you think he has a, 
he has a point, and what is your argument, your counter-argument to that, to the voter in Peoria or Des Moines? Why should we continue uh, you know, making up the balance for countries that don't fulfill the 2% requirement? I would say, I no doubt that he tries to make the point uh, in a way that would um, <clears throat> uh, gather some support, uh, because he speaks to a fundamental sentiment in the American society. Uh, it's very easy to point to Mr. Trump or Obama or whoever and, and say they are too reluctant to engage. Yes, they may be the embodiment of that sentiment, but it is deeply rooted in the American people. So that takes leadership to change that attitude. So that's my first point. Secondly, more concrete terms, to, to speak to the Smith family in Peoria. I think it's important to tell them that basically it is in their interest uh, to defend not only Estonia, but the whole alliance and the transatlantic relationship as the bedrock of our common security. Because without that security, uh, trade patterns will, would change. Uh, you, in the long run, you could risk having a hostile uh, Europe, at least a Europe, uh, dominated by the Russian thinking. And that's what President Truman learned the hard way uh, in the wake of the Second World War. Um, it was the clear thinking that it is in American interest to have a strong, united, and friendly Europe. And that's why he invested in, in, in the European economy by introducing the Marshall Plan. That's why uh, America decided uh, to uh, actually defend Western Europe against Soviet aggression, uh, thanks to the American nuclear umbrella. And if you count it in, in the usual accountant's way, I don't think at the beginning of this process uh, that you had a plus on your account, but no doubt that in the long run, the US profited from that. And if, if America were to retreat from Europe, I can tell you, Putin would advance. Also because the European countries are divided on how to approach Russia. The Germans try to accommodate Russia. Same goes for France. The UK has a tougher stance. Uh, when it comes to use of military might, France and UK have more or less the same attitude, while the Germans are more reluctant. So you, if the US were to retreat from Europe, you'll have a split in Europe, and you can be pretty sure that the Kremlin would exploit that, they would advance, and suddenly America would end up having a more or less hostile Europe on the eastern shore of the Atlantic. So my conclusion is very clear. It is in your interest to defend Estonia and the whole of Europe. 
So who do you think is the greater uh, threat to NATO? Is it that kind of, is it Vladimir Putin or is it that kind of retreat that we see manifested in Brexit and Donald Trump? Which is the greater threat? Oh. Or do you have to pick? Yeah, but there, there are so many uh, that you could fear that Europe is on the brink of dissolution. Um, because it's not only Mr. Trump, it's not only Brexit, but it's also, and maybe here now, even worse, uh, the burden from refugees and immigrants. And still you have the Euro crisis. Uh, it's far from over. So you might again discuss uh, Brexit uh, at a certain stage. So all these things together um, uh, risk unraveling the European integration project. So to save it, to, to come to the rescue of the whole project, you also need a strong American leadership. And, and I think that's the point. I mean, it's so easy to say, we cannot afford it, uh, why can't they invest more, etc. But at the end of the day, because the US is the world's only superpower, you have a responsibility to defend not only Europe, but also Australia, Japan, South Korea, you mentioned it. So whether you like it or not, that's your destiny. So in a way, I think it's a bit illegitimate to discuss uh, budgets in, in, in that respect. Yeah, it's hard to say this way, but I think that's the truth. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the red, uh, President Obama's infamous red line when it came to Syria and chemical weapons and the refugee crisis and uh, kind of Europe potentially dissolving <coughs> under the weight of that. Do, and you also mentioned, uh, you said prevention is, more, is cheaper than, than cure. Uh, do you think America and NATO should have taken a greater role um, or more active role in Syria in terms of preventing this and keeping people from flooding into Europe, do you think America now and NATO now should take a greater role in the refugee crisis? What should NATO's role have been and should be, in other words? The brief answer is yes. I do believe that we would have been in a better situation now if we had intervened uh, much earlier. Uh, and actually... We, we being NATO? Uh, and the U.S., okay. uh, but also NATO. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, and it was discussed. It was discussed. Uh, at a certain stage, I received indications uh, in NATO that the U.S. administration were considering something. Mm -hmm. uh, and afterwards, we know uh, that some a body in the administration wanted to deliver more assistance to the moderate opposition. Among them, Clinton, by the way. So I received that information. So I suggested at a foreign minister's meeting uh, in Brussels that uh, NATO should start what we call prudent planning for all eventualities. So prudent planning, that is a secret planning. No one would know about it. Uh, and I thought, that's the right thing to do. And of course, I got support for that 
from Clinton, from William Hague, uh, from the UK, but I also received strong opposition from other camps. And as all decisions in NATO require unanimity, we had to share the plans. I still think we should have done something uh, at that uh, stage. At least we should have provided more assistance to the moderate uh, opposition. I would not suggest that this is easy, because it's not. Uh, it's very complicated because of the ethnic, religious, and political divides uh, within uh, Syria. Uh, but President Putin exploited the vacuum, and he launched a reckless military operation in Syria that has prolonged and worsened the conflict. You cannot both defend Assad and hope for a long-term sustainable solution. That's not possible. Um, so for that reason, I think strong American leadership, um, including a NATO engagement, might have brought us in another and better situation than today. So uh, another issue that's come up, you know, that comes up when you talk about Syria and why nothing was done, and it's now an issue in our presidential election is Libya. The intervention in Libya happened on your watch. It is now being um, laid at uh, Secretary Clinton's feet as a ma major mistake and a sign of her bad judgment. Any regrets there? Any, uh, anything that you would have done differently? Uh, I think NATO did what NATO should do. The problems, and there are many problems, arised when NATO left. And we had to leave because of the, NATO, uh, the UN mandate. So we should recall what happened. Uh, in February, March 2011, the UN Security Council discussed and eventually adopted an historic resolution based on the principle of responsibility to protect. So we engaged in Libya strictly in accordance with the UN mandate. Uh, so we were not allowed to, to have people on the ground. We launched uh, an air operation alone and a very successful air operation, I would say. So in a seven-month campaign, air campaign, we succeeded in preventing a genocide. Um, what happened afterwards was that when we left, and we had to leave because the UN decided, now you'll have to leave. Okay, we left. On the 31st of October 2011, we left. And then I had expected the international community to stand ready for political follow-up and assist the new authorities in Libya building new institutions. But no one was there. So who should have been there? The UN. Uh, the UN should have an, assisted the new authorities in building new institutions. Remember that uh, uh, Gaddafi, he had demolished all political institutions. You had to start from scratch. And of course, that's quite a challenge. And on the 31st of October 2011, I visited Tripoli, and I saw all over, uh, they sang NATO, for our engagement. They sang for our help. So NATO was so popular 
in Libya. I met with the young freedom fighters, and they were all asking for a future, a Western-oriented uh, future. They were so optimistic, but soon uh, the society declined, and today it's a failed state because no one was there to help them. Um, so I would say the lesson learned from the Libya operation is that even the most successful military operation may end in a, in a kind of failure if it is not accompanied by a well-thought-through political strategy for how to follow up in the post-conflict situation. Um, so, of course, we have to learn from the Libya operation, but military, it was an indisputable success. Okay, I have one more question for you, and then we're going to open it up to the audience. Um, so, I personally, I'm a, I'm a Russia watcher. I'm going to continue playing devil's advocate here. But uh, the NATO intervention in Libya, uh, which was uh, allowed to proceed because Russia abstained from the vote in the UN Security Council, was is in part seen as uh, Medvedev's downfall and the reason for Vladimir Putin's return to a third term at the helm of the Kremlin. Uh, it, it also, I think, renewed the specter of NATO, or is seen to have renewed the specter of NATO as a threat to Russia. Um, and very quickly, we saw Russia, uh, Russia inter internally and externally drumming up hysteria about NATO expansion in violation of a promise made to Gorbachev. Uh, does that hold any water for you? Any regrets about taking in, uh, you know, former Soviet republics into NATO? I mean, I'm sure they have no regrets. But do you think that was a mistake that allowed, that gave Putin a pretext? Not at all. I, I strongly disagree with this uh, Russian uh, propaganda. First of all, such a promise was never given to the Russians. Uh, fortunately, all the papers from the 1990 negotiations on reunification of Germany have now been declassified, so you can easily see with your own eyes what was said and what wasn't said. Such a promise was never given. Uh, the more because <laughs> you, you, you couldn't do it without unanimity within NATO. It was never raised, it was never discussed for the very reason that at that time uh, the <coughs> Warsaw Pact still existed. Uh, so no one discussed enlargement, so it wasn't even discussed. Now, each and every time since then when we have uh, enlarged NATO, we have reached out to Russia to include Russia. We enlarged first time in 1999, and two years before, we adopted a joint NATO-Russia document called the uh, Founding Act. And, and one of the more visible initiatives in the Founding Act was to allow Russia to establish an embassy, a permanent representation, in the midst of NATO headquarters in, in, Russia, uh, in uh, Brussels. I, almost Russia. I mean, it, it ended up becoming the next largest representation next to the US. Uh, they were not all classical diplomats, but um, <laughs> they uh, had a representation in the midst of NATO headquarters in Brussels. So that was the first outreach to Russia. Secondly, uh, we uh, had the big enlargement in 2004. And two years before that, in 2002, we established something very special, namely a NATO-Russia Council, 
It is the only country outside NATO with whom we have such a council to discuss, uh, uh, to control, to take uh, joint decisions. Again, an outreach to Russia. In 2010, we decided at the NATO-Russia summit to develop what we call a strategic partnership between NATO and Russia. So we have done a lot to reach out to Russia. Russia has no reason to feel marginalized. Russia gave you a, a NATO base on its territory also in Ulyanovsk. The NATO base in Ulyanovsk for troops, sending troops to Afghanistan. Yeah, that's right. That's right. As actually, Russia was very helpful uh, on Afghanistan, uh, and and in general, uh, up to 2014, we developed uh, practical cooperation on Afghanistan, counter narcotics, counter terrorism, uh, counter piracy, etc. So we succeeded in that. <coughs> so you might ask. Weren't you a bit naive to think that Russia would really engage in all that? But I would say, we did it with open eyes. We had what I would call a generational obligation to try and create a new situation and fulfill the vision of a Europe whole, free, and at peace. We thought the Russians shared our vision, but in February 2014, apparently they didn't. Uh, and, and they try now to redraw the map uh, and create new dividing lines in Europe. And my last remark here is that we did not enlarge NATO uh, nor the EU to make the organizations bigger. We did it because the former communist dictatorships strongly wanted to become members of our organizations. And I think each and every nation in the world has an inherent right to decide its alliance affiliation herself. So I think the Russians, instead of complaining, they should think about why their neighbors are so eager to join our organization. That's a good point. Okay, we're going to open it up for questions. And, you know, the old uh, cliche dictum, let's ask a question instead of giving statements. Sir? <laughs> Anders Ostlund, the Atlantic Council. Good to see you again. We met in Kiev uh, 10 days ago or so. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this uh, MH17 uh, report that came out uh, yesterday. How do you see the process going forward? What should be done? And this has taken a long time, two years. How can it be speeded up? And uh, what can be effective? Thank you. Yeah, it was a remarkable uh, report. Um, but it, first of all, I'm afraid it, it won't have any impact uh, on, on the Russian attitude. But it might have an impact uh, on, on the Western approach to continued sanctions. I think the Europeans will now prolong the sanctions. That's my clear assessment. After this, they have got new arguments. Um, and um, personally, I also think Europe should now prolong sanctions for a period of 12 months. As you know, we have uh, prolonged sanctions for periods of six months. 12 months would harmonize the European sanction regime with the American 
sanction regime and furthermore we would avoid mixing up uh, sanctions with elections not only in the US but also in uh, France in May and next autumn in Germany. So a prolongation for one year would make sense in my opinion uh, plus the fact that uh, we have this uncertainty every six months and Putin tries to uh, create splits uh, within the EU and between Europe and America each and every time. So my conclusion is that uh, this new report will not have any impact on the Kremlin, but it might have uh, an impact on the European side. Hi, uh, Dmitry Pirobrzhensky. I don't have an affiliation. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Uh, just one quick comment and two, uh, two quick questions. So the first comment is you write in your book about Russia's decline demographically. I'm not sure that that's still the case, but I may be wrong. The other qu questions about the United Nations. You say the United Nations is too weak to be the world's policeman. Do you think it's possible to change that? And about the comment you made about the United Nations in Libya is uh, this, uh, the candidate for Secretary General has advocated Mitch, I think is he advocated some peace stabilization missions, and I'm wondering what it would look like for what you, you suggest the UN failed in Libya. What should they have done, and what would that look like in practical terms? Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, your first question, I, I didn't, uh, the, your first question, uh, just keyword. The UN is too weak to be the world's yeah. policeman. Is that possible to ever change? Uh, no, um, not in the short term, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but of course, you 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 could carry out necessary long-term reforms of of the UN, uh, and in that respect, I also think the Alliance for Democracy shouldn't be an alternative to to the UN. We need the UN as a forum for discussions between all the world's nations, whether they are democracies or autocracies or, or whatever. But I think the world's democracies should coordinate better. And one of the purposes could be profound reforms of the UN uh, system, organizational, uh, to stop the corrupt elements, etc. And furthermore, it could also lead to a change of attitude. The problem is that whenever the UN is asked to carry out a peacekeeping operation, the UN has difficulties in getting member states to provide finances and troops and eventually also as a, a robust mandate. Um, so for these reasons, the UN is too weak and it will need profound reforms to change that. I think it is possible in the long run, but in the short term, you only have the US and the world's democracies to act as the world's policemen. Now, uh, the UN and, um, and uh, Libya, we we discussed within NATO 
how to follow up on our Libya uh, operation. Actually, at a certain stage, we received a request from the then Libyan Prime Minister to launch a security operation or at least train their security forces. And we responded positively. But then he left, and he also left the country. So uh, this request couldn't materialize. Um, as regards, so I think NATO did what NATO could do. As regards the UN, I think the, the UN should have um, responded positively to requests uh, from the new Libyan authorities on concrete assistance to build a governmental apparatus right from scratch. That's what was needed, uh, but the UN wasn't there. And, and maybe be, because um, among the UN uh, member states, there were some member states opposed to an active UN role. Sir in the back. Uh, Hans Benendijk from Seiss and Rand. It's very good to see you again, and thank you for your clarity in your presentation. I'd like to ask you to expand upon something that you talked about in the discussion earlier, and that might be called the renationalization of the transatlantic space. Uh, it's something that we're all worried about, but it's the populism, uh, the illiberal uh, democracy, uh, xenophobia. We're seeing this everywhere. Uh, in the Visegrad states, in Turkey, you mentioned Brexit. You, there are elements of this in Western Europe and various parties, uh, and we're seeing it in the United States. Uh, how serious do you think a threat this is to the post-World post War II institutions that have held us together? Uh, and then secondly, uh, American leadership. American leadership is part of the answer, but it's not the whole answer because much of this is going on in Europe. So. Uh, I wonder if you could just expand on that part of the discussion. Thank you. Yeah, on the latter, I, I agree with you. Of course, American leadership is not the whole answer. That's also why I stress uh, in my book, I argue at length on how uh, the U.S. should cooperate with like-minded democracies across the world. And of course, that would also take, for instance, in, in Europe, that would take a change of mentality uh, because Europe is now paying the price for the lack of engagement in the Middle East. Uh, and we see that clearly because of, of the influx of uh, refugees and uh, immigrants. Um, and, and the Europeans <laughs> have been used to uh, be more reluctant to engagement uh, out of area. But I think Europe should also, also assist the U.S. out of area. We did so in uh, Afghanistan, we did so in uh, Libya, but I think to, to strengthen the transatlantic alliance, you should not only strengthen our territorial defense within the the transatlantic alliance, we should also help each other when it comes to the broader uh, cri crisis management. Now, 
On your first question on populism and renationalization, I am very much concerned that here you are faced with a major threat. Um, and um, uh, you, 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 you see it across the board, not only because people will vote <coughs> for Mr. Trump here, uh, but you saw the Brexit vote, you see uh, Le Pen uh, in France, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, uh, you can go to the South European countries in Greece, you see a very nationalistic uh, left-wing uh, government actually. Um, in Spain they still don't have a government uh, because uh, uh, the voters also voted for um, new protest uh, parties. In some of uh, the Eastern European countries you see this populism on both the left and right side of the political spectrum. So it is a major threat, and the Kremlin is now playing their game as regards uh, st stimulus to populism uh, in our countries. We know that the Kremlin is financing some of these uh, movements and parties, for instance, the Kremlin has financed Le Pen uh, in France. We also know of other elements in, in this Russian attempt to create uh, splits within our alliance. So they know it as well. Uh, this is a reason why I consider this uh, a major challenge. How could that be addressed? That's a speech in itself, but I think in short, um, first and foremost, responsible politicians should take seriously people's concerns about, for instance, um, uh, refugees and uh, immigrants uh, in, in Europe. And I think the elite, to speak the populist uh, language, the elite hasn't been sufficiently aware of the challenges. Hello, Mr. Rasmussen. Um, I'm a French student currently on an exchange here in DC. Um, my question is fairly short. Should NATO keep on enlarging? And if so, where or with who? Um, NATO is continuing enlargement. I mean, at the Warsaw Summit, it was decided uh, that Montenegro uh, can become uh, a member of uh, NATO, so they will become a member of uh, NATO. So it's a demonstration that NATO keeps the door open. And in more general terms, the answer to your question is, if countries in Europe want to become members of NATO, our door should remain open. Because again, as I said, um, each and every country has an inherent right to decide its alliance affiliation herself. Actually, that's not only a statement from me, it's a statement which you can also read in the 1999 
OECE Charter for Security, European Security, subscribed by Russia also as an OECE country. So I think as long as countries in Europe want to become members of NATO, our door should remain open. Uh, of course, they should fulfill the necessary criteria. They should be able to contribute to uh, the overall Euroland security. They should carry out the necessary reforms to actually live up uh, to our ideals. All that should be in place. But if they want to become members, then we should accept them. Uh, as immediate candidates in that respect, I could point to countries uh, in the Balkans. Uh, I, I don't think uh, the European integration process has been completed until all Balkan countries have become members of both the EU and NATO. Uh, now we have uh, allowed Montenegro access to, um, uh, to NATO. I also think Serbia, for instance, one day might consider such a membership. Of course, it's not on the table right now, but I think in the future they might. Macedonia is already uh, asking eagerly uh, for membership of uh, NATO, but because of a name dispute with Greece, uh, we cannot move forward uh, on, on that uh, right now. Uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, that's a story in itself. Uh, it will take some time. But my point is, yes, to your answer, uh, we should continue the open-door policy as long as European countries want to become members. I'm just going to piggyback on that question. Um, Speaking of NATO expansion and looking at countries like Ukraine and Georgia and to some extent Moldova, before they had uh, territori territorial disputes created by Russia for the, arguably for the purpose of keeping them out of the EU and NATO, were they ever candidates? Was, was, there, uh, was their candidacy ever really on the table? And if not for these territorial disputes, would they have been up to snuff as uh, NATO members? That's a very good and precise question. As regards Moldova, they have it in their constitution that they should remain alliance-free. Uh, so I don't think Moldova will ever uh, apply for membership of, of NATO. Now, on Ukraine and Georgia, yes, in 2008 at the NATO Bucharest summit, we decided that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Of course, provided they shall wish and provided they fulfill necessary criteria. Putin was furious, I can tell you, because he visited us at the NATO-Russia summit in 2008, and he left Bucharest furious. Well, that, that's where he famously said that Ukraine is not a real country. Right? He did. Yeah. And three months later, he sent a clear message by invading Georgia and de facto occupied Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And uh, I, in connection with my book, I reread what Putin actually said at that summit and seen in retrospect, <clears throat> we should have taken much more seriously what he said about Ukraine and not least what he said about Crimea. Because he, he outlined for us how unfair it was that uh, Khrushchev 
uh, had just handed over Crimea to Ukraine. It hasn't been discussed in the Politburo, I don't know what. Uh, so it was very clear that Mr. Putin already in 2008 thought that Crimea wasn't Ukrainian, a Ukrainian territory, but Russian. But of course, in 1994, in the so-called Budapest Memorandum, the United States, the UK, and Russia guaranteed the sovereignty and territorial integrity and existing borders, existing borders of Ukraine, and that included Crimea as part of Ukraine. Then you can't, ten years later, grab land by force. Even if a majority of people living in Crimea would like to become members, uh, to, 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 to join the Russian Federation. There are other instruments. I mean, you could organize a referendum, a real <laughs> referendum, etc., uh, etc. Et but I think the West has a moral obligation to make the Ukrainians better able to defend their own country, taking into account that in 1994 we guaranteed the existing borders in of Ukraine. In exchange for getting rid of their nuclear weapons. In exchange for getting rid of their nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that's part of the story, that the Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons. Actually, they handed them over to Russia and believed that Russia would destroy them. I hope they did. but. Uh, actually, it was in exchange for giving up their nuclear weapons. And that's also a very important thing, because uh, it sends a very dangerous signal to countries around the world aspiring to acquire nuclear weapons, that you can't rely on international guarantees. So maybe some of them might think, then maybe it's better to mm -hmm. have a nuclear weapon ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council, Prime Minister, Secretary General. Good to see you. And I remember just before you became Sec Gen of NATO, you visited the Atlantic Council as yeah. your first year. <laughs> we were flattered and honored by that when we were working across the street. Um, your notion about America becoming the world's policeman also means you want us to be the fireman and the world's mayor. And quite frankly and bluntly, under current circumstances, that's not going to happen. Uh, we have spent about $6 trillion unsuccessfully in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya. Uh, you might want to read the House of Commons Foreign Affairs uh, Select Committee report on that. Uh, the coalition against the Islamic State is not going well. And so unless something dramatically changes, I don't see any chance of America exerting the kind of leadership that you would like to see, unless there's a quid pro quo. Now, what sort of quid pro quo do you think Europe and NATO could offer? For a long time, as you know, I have been arguing for a new Harmel report, because I think despite your efforts for the new strategic uh, concept, I think NATO needs to make some fundamental changes. As you know, it doesn't have an intelligence capacity, and it's very, very weak in supporting its allies in what I think is misnamed as hybrid warfare, but we don't have the capacities. So is there potentially a quid pro quo from Europe that if NATO does certain things, that may encourage 
uh, the United States for taking what I believe, as you do, is essential, but quite frankly, under current circumstances, no matter who's going to be president, I really don't see that happening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> First of all, let me stress that if the United States do not take up these functions as the words policeman, fireman, and mayor, then the United States will eventually pay the price herself. That's my prediction. Of course. Yeah. But you may be right. It will be uphill. So we should take some practical political steps to convince uh, Congress uh, that it's worthwhile investing uh, in at least some uh, leadership. So what could be done? I agree with you that on the intel front, much more could be done. But uh, we uh, carried out what I would call a profound reform of uh, the NATO intelligence system while I was Secretary General. Uh, and actually, uh, we um, uh, also have Sandy Versbau, an American Deputy Secretary General, to lead these efforts uh, within uh, NATO. So we have done a lot. But it's also part of that story that some nations within NATO are a bit reluctant to share too much intelligence with fellow allies, among them the United States. Uh, so it's not always easy within NATO to really develop our intelligence community, because the US and the UK in particular, they are not willing to share all they know. Um, so it's, it's a two-way street, I would say, if we are to make NATO more forward-leaning on intelligence, which I think we should. Um, I also think uh, if and when the Europeans will clearly demonstrate that they are investing more in defense, that could also help on Capitol Hill. Uh, I know from <laughs> numerous visits uh, here, at Capitol Hill, uh, this is the main concern that the Europeans do not invest sufficiently in defense. But that will happen. It has already happened. I, if I don't remember, or if I remember correctly, I think this year the Europeans will invest eight billion more in defense than they did last year. Uh, and that's quite a lot. And of course, it's forced by Putin, who is one of NATO's greatest assets, actually, uh, because he has changed the whole agenda. Now no one is in doubt why we do need NATO. So I think in the coming years, you will see European NATO allies invest more. Um, I also think the Europeans could do more on uh, the military industry side. Uh, the Europeans are often complaining that to do more collectively is equivalent to buy American. Uh, but the reason is that the European defense industry is too fragmented 
too little competitive. And if some industries were merged uh, and we got a real internal defense market in Europe, then you could also strengthen the competitiveness of European defense industries, which would also uh, be to the benefit of the US at the end of the day, because it would convince Europeans to invest more. So I agree with you, uh, we need concrete steps to demonstrate to American politicians that Europeans are lifting more. All right, one last question. Thank you. I'm Elmer from the Voice of America Georgian Service. Um, during the previous U.S. administration, as we are going into the new administration, um, it's um, sort of interesting to kind of recall the previous administration's approach to Russia. Uh, we had reset during Obama administration. We had uh, George Bush uh, seeing a friend in Putin's eyes. Do you think the next administration will have a sort of reset? And uh, do you think there should be a reset? Do we need one with Russia as the new administration comes in? Clearly, we need a better partnership with Russia. But I think Russia has to change. It's on the Russian side we need change now. Um, uh, we, we tried the reset. We have tried the outreach to Russia, as I mentioned. We, we have decided to develop a strategic partnership. We have uh, engaged in practical cooperation with Russia. I do believe that we have done what we can. And if Russia is threatened, it is definitely not from the West. I mean, no NATO ally has any idea of attacking Russia. If Russia is threatened, it's from the south. It's from Islamic terrorists in the Caucasus rather than from the west. And the Russians have to realize that. So a reset, yes, but I think it should be in the Kremlin. Um, uh, so well, I would add to that. Actually, I also think the Americans should maybe reset internally. And with that, I mean to pursue more bipartisan agreement on your foreign and defense policy. During the many decades I have now visited the U.S., I have seen a change in the attitude. Uh, during the, particularly the Reagan years, when I visited the U.S., it was very clear that there was a bipartisan agreement on the overall American goals when it comes to security policy. But in particular, during the Clinton years, then the Bush, and now the Obama years, you have seen such a partisan foreign and defense policy, which at the end of the day weakens the US externally and vis-a-vis -vis Russia. 
So I think a new American president should take three important steps immediately. Firstly, in his or her inaugural address, um, in line with what President Kennedy did in 1961, in his or her own words, of course, but still uh, declare that we will pay any price and bear any burden to help our friends and defend liberty and oppose our foes. That's what Kennedy said. Secondly, the next president should convene congressional leaders as soon as possible and try to achieve with them a bipartisan agreement on the main lines in American foreign policy. And thirdly, immediately after that, the next president should convene an international meeting with all democracies in the world. These three steps should be taken within the first 100 days. Uh, so that's going to be it. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you, everyone, for attending and for your questions.